Well, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, the atomic bomb, also called the atom bomb, is a weapon with great explosive power that results from the sudden release of energy upon the splitting or fission of a nuclei or a heavy element such as plutonium or uranium, splitting atoms. There's an image that I placed at the bottom of the live stream page if you want to see a, kind of an illustration of that. But when a neutron strikes the nucleus of an atom of the isotope uranium-235, it causes that nucleus to split into two fragments, each of which is a nucleus with about half the protons and neutrons of the original. An isotope is one or two or... Uh, more species of atoms of a chemical element with the same atomic number and position. So every chemical element has one or more isotopes. And in the process of splitting, what happens is a huge amount of thermal energy is released, as well as gamma rays and more neutrons. And under certain conditions, the escaping neutrons strike and fission more of the surrounding uranium nuclei of those atoms. And it emits more neutrons and more, and it causes a chain reaction. And it, it releases a massive amount of energy. Now, my brother, he now lives in Japan, and uh, he shared with me on FaceTime how sobering it was to actually visit Nagasaki, where the bomb was dropped by U.S. forces in World War II. He said you could still see the shadows of people on the side of buildings where they were completely vaporized. And it has left damaging radioactive effects even to this day, 78 years later. In like manner, several millennia ago, there was another atom bomb that dropped. And the fallout is still felt to this day. Well, we're not talking A-T-O-M, we're talking A-D-A-M. We look around our world, we see disaster, disease, and death. We see problems, pollution, and pain. We scratch our heads and we say, how in the world did our world get to this place? Why are there devastating earthquakes, volcanoes, natural disasters, hurricanes? Why have we fought wars that have killed millions and millions of people? Why were men like Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao, and Hitler allowed to exist and murder millions of people. Why can't we get along with each other? Why is there heart disease, cancer, and strokes? Well, the answer is simple. It's sin, and it's the fallout of the atom bomb. Sin entered the world through Adam, and the fallout and destruction gets worse and worse. We carry a genetic defect within each one of us that has been passed down by our first parents. And it's called sin. Man has tried many things to cure this ill. Man's tried religion, sexuality, drinking, serving, helping, giving, eating, etc. Anything to find a cure for the sick human heart. And yet it's all failed. Right after our first parents rebelled against God, it garnered some devastating effects on humanity. There would be constant war between God's image bearers and Satan and his followers. We would be embroiled in a cosmic conflict of huge proportions. Eve, because of her sin, would bring forth children in pain. There would be an ongoing struggle between the woman and the man for leadership within the marriage relationship. 
the leadership role of the husband and the complementary relationship between the husband and wife that were ordained by God before the fall have now been deeply damaged and distorted by sin. Eve will have the sinful desire to oppose Adam and to assert leadership over him, reversing God's plan for Adam's leadership in marriage. Adam will also abandon his God-given responsibility of taking leadership and have a distorted desire to rule. Adam would be commanded to assume responsibility over his family and to provide and care for them. But part of the curse would, was that he would have to eke out a living with the, by the sweat of his brow that nothing would ever come easy for him. With all of the fallout of the Adam bomb, <clears throat> God took action and took responsibility even though the mess wasn't his. In verse 21 of Genesis 3, we read that God replaced our first parents' religious fig leaves, which rendered powerless in cleansing them of their guilt and shame and rendered them powerless to restore them back to a fellowship with God that they once enjoy. And God replaced them with skins from the death of an innocent animal, a substitute. God covered them with provision from innocent blood. This would be a picture of the gospel and what God would do down the road. The gospel in Genesis 3, verse 21. After making provision for them and restoring them back to walking with him the way that they once did in the cool of the day, God did one of the most loving things he could do. He banished them from the garden. He banished them from paradise, the very place where they were created. The very paradise he created and tailor-made for them because he didn't want them to take of the tree of life lest they live forever in a state of death. One of the most loving things Jesus does in our lives is to tell us no and not allow us into certain situations, relationships, career, entrepreneurial pursuits, ministries, friendships, etc. There was a Greek proverb that once said, if you want to ruin a person, answer all their prayers. He keeps us away from something that seemingly seems good to protect us from damage down the road. Maybe next time we can thank Jesus for the times that he has told us no. Which brings us to the book of Revelation. With our first parents banished from paradise in Genesis 3, the capstone of the work of Jesus Christ in this future prophecy will be paradise restored, which this book beautifully displays. You'll notice in chapter 22, the tree of life is there in our new home, the new Jerusalem. But guess what's not there? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? It's conspicuously absent from our eternal home because we've chosen by faith Jesus Christ and there's no need for that tree to be there anymore. There's no need for that kind of volition because it has already been made through the power of Jesus Christ and his sovereign elected hand. Now, as many of you know, I have a bias, in a biased view in the study of the subject of eschatology, and you are about to get it today. 
My goal is not to convert you to my position. My goal is that it would provoke you to do your own study of the scriptures. And that the second would that you would see the glory of God. So. I choose to take this text literally. The book of Revelation and chronologically as God, the Holy Spirit has laid it out. I believe that God means what he says and he says what he means. Yes, this book is full of imagery and symbols. But those images have a literal meaning behind them. In fact, when John wrote this, he assumed that you and I have knowledge of the Old Testament. That's why I recommend a new believer to read and study the book of Revelation after the gospel of John. And you say, really? Why? Because you have to track down all 600 allusions to the Old Testament that are in the book of Revelation. It'll give you a holistic view of the gospel. John wrote the book. Uh, He wrote both the gospel of John and the book of Revelation, which gives us a wonderful perspective of the earthly ministry of Jesus, as well as his second coming. John saw both sides of our Lord. He saw him behind a veil of flesh, and then he saw him in all of his glory. Wow, what a privilege. What a privilege. The book of Revelation is not a hard book to understand. If you read it at face value, it just speaks for itself. In fact, the Holy Spirit gives us a divine outline uh, built in in verse 19, where Jesus tells John, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, metatauta in the Greek. The things that he has seen is the glorified, resurrected Christ in chapter 1. Then in chapters 2 and 3, those things that are, John details the church on earth. The letter is penned to seven churches on an old Roman postal circuit and have the same structure. Jesus gives these churches a description of himself as he relates to them in their particular situation. He encourages them in what they're doing well, tells them where they're falling short, exhorts them in a direction, and then gives them a wonderful promise. In chapter four, we see a door open in heaven to the church with the voice of Jesus saying, come up here and I will show you what what must take place, meta tauta, after this. This is the rapture of the church. This is when Jesus calls the church home to be with him and to celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. I have a good friend uh, who I worked with at Billy Graham, and he's 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 an all millennialist, and he and he and I love each other, and we we like to we like to argue back and forth, and and uh, one day I quipped, you know, if if the rapture is at the end of the tribulation, we go up and we come right back down. That makes the marriage supper of the Lamb a snack lunch. <laughs> anyway, I digress. In chapters 4 and 5, we see the church in heaven before the throne of God and gives us this crazy scene, which John even has a hard time conveying in human terms. We see this strange document in the right hand of the Father on the throne and Jesus, our champion, the only one worthy of receiving that document. I believe that document is the title deed to the planet Earth. And there's lots of scripture to support it and I don't have time to get into it. 
Jesus takes the deed, which he is the rightful owner of, and begins to loose the seals on it. And while the church is tucked away with Jesus in heaven, he loosens the seals and begins to release judgment on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. Chapters 6 through 19 are the judgment chapters. The Antichrist is released in chapter 6, along with the four horsemen. The 144,000 are marked on their foreheads in chapter 7 and are released to evangelize the world. In chapter 9, demons are released upon the earth to get men to repent. But men's hearts become so hard they refuse to repent even though God gives them a taste of what hell will be like. Chapter 11 introduces us to the two witnesses who call men to repentance, specifically the nation of Israel. The Antichrist will kill them, but God will resurrect him three days later and will rapture them up to heaven. Chapter 12, Satan goes after the nation of Israel, which is symbolic of the woman that John sees. The woman gives birth to a male child, Jesus Christ. It was through Israel that Christ came, who was then captured up to heaven. And after Jesus was taken to heaven, Or ascended to heaven after Satan's failed attempt to devour the child there in chapter 12. He goes after the rest of the nation of Israel to destroy her. But God will protect the nation during the time of what is called Jacob's trouble there in Jeremiah 30 verse 7. Chapter 13 introduces us to the Antichrist and the false prophet as a team to establish his world rule. It's an unholy trinity that you see there. And his time is short. And he tries to take as many non-believers down to hell with him as possible. Chapter 14, you have the 144,000 standing with Jesus on Mount Zion and proclaiming the gospel. And an angel will fly around preaching the gospel, God's creation. Revelation 15, the church in heaven erupts in worship and praise uh, for the Lord, because the earth is the earth. <laughs> Jesus is evicting the earth's old residents. The Antichrist loses his power. The world gathers their armies against the Antichrist to make war against them. There in chapter 16, chapter 17 and 18 describe the horror of Babylon, a false world religious system. In chapter 18, the economic Babylon, a global economic system which God will burn down to the ground. Chapter 19 is the second coming of Jesus Christ as he rides on a white horse with his church right behind him. Following right down behind him to take over. Chapter 20, God throws Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet into the abyss for a literal thousand year reign and sets up his millennial kingdom for a thousand years. After the thousand years, Jesus releases Satan for a one final time to mount one final rebellion, which Jesus will destroy him and throw Satan to his eternal destination, the lake of fire. Then the great white throne judgment is executed, where this judgment is for unbelievers only, as it recognizes only the dead. Believers' judgment is for our rewards. It's called the Bema Seat. Unbelievers are judged according to the standard of which God judges everyone. Perfection. Unbelievers are judged because they chose to rely on their own righteousness 
rather than the righteousness provided for them through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Chapter 21, God creates a new heaven and a new earth with the new Jerusalem as its centerpiece. This city will be 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high, and 1,500 miles long. Massive, with pearl gates and golden streets. We can't even imagine or picture what it's going to be like. With the tree of life being fed by the pure river flowing out of the new Jerusalem. Then John gives us a warning and a benediction. And we live happily ever after. (laughs) Did you get all that? (laughs) And now to our text at hand. Normally in any Pauline letter, you'll have a benediction at the end of the letter. Sometimes in the middle. But here in verses 4 through 8, the beginning, John gives us the benediction before he starts even laying all of this prophecy out. That's how excited he is. And that's why we have chosen to go through the book of Revelation, because there is a blessing attached to it. And though we as elders have different views on this, we felt it was important above any interpretation of it that we remain unified. Because that is something the church has sorely lacked. I told the guys I'll explain it to them on the way up anyway. So, But no, that's, that's the most important thing. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So you see right off the bat, John pens this to seven actual churches that were in existence in Asia Minor. Now you'll see the number seven throughout the scriptures uh, a lot, especially in the book of Revelation. It is typically the number of completeness and is often called the number of perfection. But perfection in the Greek doesn't imply without flaw, but it indicates something that comes into full maturity. There are seven days in a week, which makes a complete week. In music, you have what's called a a heptatonic scale or a musical scale with seven pitches or tones or octaves. So the question is, why these seven churches? Why would Jesus single out uh, uh, these churches? Well, there were certainly more churches in this region. Why doesn't Jesus mention the church at Colossae or Ephesus? And I suggest that Jesus selected these churches to give us a complete picture of the church of Jesus Christ. Now notice also what John says. He says, grace to you and peace. Now let's not overlook this. These are the Siamese twins of the New Testament. And they are in the correct order. In order to have peace with God, you must first understand and embrace the grace of God through Jesus Christ. If my heart is not at peace, it's because I'm failing to understand the grace of God in my life. At that point, I have gospel amnesia. I have forgotten that all of my sins were wiped away. Grace is a gift to be received, not something to be earned. Like those fig leaves Adam and Eve sewed together. It didn't do the trick to relieve them of their guilt And the burden of their shame. It was the grace of God. In the blood of that innocent animal. That gave them the confidence before the Lord. To stand and have fellowship with him. 
A.W. Tozer says this, Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. Its use to us as sinful men is to save us and make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages of the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. How many of you here are still trying to appease God based on your own efforts? Rather than having the courage and the power to just receive what Christ has already done for you. Why does God give grace to those who don't deserve it? It's simple. Because it pleases him. Isn't that beautiful? From him who is and who was and who is to come, John says next. This is describing the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. This is a benediction, a greeting uh, from the Trinity here in the book of Revelation. The Father is described as someone who is and who was and who is to come. This is called anthropomorphic language, meaning John is applying human characteristics to describe God's eternal, timeless nature. He was, is, and is to come. But he is all of that, all at the same time. Are you with me? You have perhaps heard the argument, well, if God created us, then who created God? But that question assumes that God is created. The fact is, the Bible describes him as eternal. He's not bound by time. I am, I may say that, but then I was, because I said I am a moment ago, but I'm not anymore. But God dwells in the eternal. He is always I am. He is always I am. And only God can say that. That is why God is writing this book of Revelation. He is outside of time. He sees the beginning from the end. Many years ago, a friend of mine had the privilege of attending the Tournament of Roses parade there in Pasadena, California. He said it was quite a spectacle. The contestants spend a whole year preparing these floats to march in the parade. And he said to see it in action was quite an experience as he watched the floats and the sequence of events go by one by one. Now, my friend saw the events unfolding one by one as it was happening. But the guy up there in the Goodyear blimp saw the whole thing from beginning to end. God sees the future. God He doesn't just predict the future. He sovereignly arranges the future by his power. So this book that you hold in your hands is history in advance. It's history in advance. And that's why you and I can have comfort today. He not only sees history in general, he sees your history. What you will do All the times that you screw up. How can God be disappointed in you if he already knows what's going to happen? If you are in Christ, your future is secure. If you are not in Christ, please, I beg of you, repent. Turn to Christ and ask forgiveness of your sin and lay down your pride.
If you do not, then your future does not look so good. And the Lord is carrying you and leading you to a good end. For those of us who are in Christ. And he desires to make us brand new creatures. There was a man who went to a cemetery for a burial. He arrived ahead of the procession. And as he waited for the arrival of others, he occupied himself in reading some of the epitaphs on the tombstones. He saw one across the way that caught his attention and it said, death is eternal. And he thought, well, that's the most depressing thing I've ever read on a tombstone. But he had also noticed that part of the tombstone was obscured by another one through his line of sight. But as he walked closer, the full message said, death is eternal life. You see, we cannot let anything that we are struggling with in our lives to obscure the reality that God is in complete control of our future. And that's what the book of Revelation describes. Just because we have a dim or a, uh, a blocked view according to our circumstances doesn't mean that he is not working it out for good. Look at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. John now addresses the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness. He is witness to the truth of who God is and who he is. Jesus said in John 14, 6, that he is truth. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten son who is of the bosom of the father and has declared him. Revelation three fourteen calls him the amen, the faithful and the true witness. He declared to Pilate to testify to the truth there in John eighteen thirty seven. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, he cannot lie. If there's one thing that God cannot do is he cannot lie. He cannot lie. You can look, many people say, hey, what is God like? All you have to do is look at Jesus, the faithful witness, and you'll know exactly what God is like. The Bible says that he is the firstborn of the dead. Now, what does this mean? Well, it doesn't mean the firstborn ever, as if he's a created being. He's not the first ever to be resurrected from the dead, for we have many accounts in the Old Testament of resurrections. But the Greek word here is the word prototokos. It it means a preeminence. He is the preeminent one. So let me give you an example. If I ask you, is Jill Biden the first lady to ever live? You would say, no, that's ridiculous. But Jill Biden is, has a preeminent position in the Oval Office. She is the wife of the President of the United States. In the same way, God declared Jesus as his preeminent one. In fact, it says in Psalm eighty nine twenty seven, Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So this isn't in terms of pedigree or offspring. This is in terms of position. This is his position. And notice John says that he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Hallelujah for that. Notice the tense here. This isn't past tense or or future tense. This is right now. 
He rules over the affairs of the political leaders and military generals of the world right now. Think about that next time you and I complain about our political leaders. I've heard more things this week. Because the world elite gathered in Davos to come up with their Dr. Evil plans on how to control the world and the Bilderbergers and all of that. I'm just so tired of it. Because the Bible says that he is ruler of the kings of the earth. It doesn't matter what they're doing. God is ruling over them and they don't even realize it. In fact, in Psalm 2, 1 through 9, I won't read the whole thing, but God, this is a conversation between the Trinity, this psalm. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, Jesus Christ, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. This is a prophecy of the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's one thing to not believe in God or to just hold out, reject him. It's another thing to pick a fight with him. And yet that's precisely what the world is doing. To him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood. If there's one thing that the book of Revelation is all about, it's about this. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. To him who loves us, not in the future, not in the past, but right now. Because if God's eternal... His love for you is also eternal. This is the heart of the gospel because he loved us and freed us from our sins. This is one of the main reasons why I truly believe the church will not go through the judgment and the wrath of God because of, well, many reasons, but right here, the heart of the gospel demonstrates that Jesus Christ took the wrath that we so richly deserved. And he has promised to deliver us from the wrath to come. You got a verse for that, Brett? Yeah, I got a few. I'm glad you asked. First Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10, Paul says, For they themselves declare concerning us what matter of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and... To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 5, 9, Paul's continuing thought after chapter 4, and he's talking about the rapture. He says this, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 3, 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I told you I'd make you mad this morning. Verse 6. But I hate to be the bearer of good news. There it is. Verse 6. And made us a kingdom 
Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He made us a kingdom. Jesus' love for us made us a kingdom. The kingdom in its current state is when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And we immediately enter into the loving rule of God and his sovereign protection. We as believers are governed by God in our daily lives and our current affairs. And every aspect of how we live is in the sphere of Christ's rule and reign within our hearts. That's what it means to be a kingdom. So the kingdom is the rule of God in the place of God and the people of God. The kingdom is something you cannot see, but yet finds its reality in our lives. But there's coming a day when we will see it and experience it. He's also made us priests to God, his father. Now, what is that? You're probably asking yourself, a priest? Me? I don't wear a funny robe and fuzzy slippers and drink sherry and walk around spitting out pithy Zen statements. I mean, I'm not a priest. What does that mean? Oh, yes, you are. In the Old Testament, in order to serve as a priest, you had to be born into the tribe of Levi to perform the duties of a priest to minister to the people before God. Only the Levites had this special privilege, this closeness to the Lord. In fact, God did not permit the Levites to own huge tracts of land because God said, I am their inheritance. Isn't that beautiful? However, all that's required now is that you're just simply born again. You now have the right to act on behalf of God to administer the gospel, to serve in his court for his kingdom. You are a priest in your place of work, the grocery store, the golf course, the neighborhood. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not a mediator type of priest for salvation. That, that title is only given to Jesus Christ. There's only one mediator between God and men, and that's the man, Jesus. But a priest represents God on behalf of him and has the honor of serving before him. White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre speaks on behalf of President Biden. She speaks for the most powerful man of the free world. She has that privilege because it was granted to her. And in the same sense, God through Jesus Christ has qualified you to speak on his behalf. What an awesome privilege. To him be glory and dominion forever. This is a doxology. Do you sense John's heart just exploding with joy? Behold, verse 7, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He's coming with the clouds. John uses the word behold. He wants to arrest our attention. And when Jesus comes, he will come with clouds. Clouds in scripture are almost always related to God's glory. A cloud was used as a visible manifestation of God's presence in the Old Testament to Israel during the wilderness wanderings. At the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. It symbolized God's presence. When the Lord communicated with Moses at the tent of meeting, a cloud of glory came down. In fact, the Hebrew word there is kabod, which means a weight. His glory has weight. The pillar of cloud would descend and he would stand at the tent of meeting as 
The Bible says that Moses talked to God as one talks to his friend. Jesus ascended to heaven in a cloud there in Acts 1. Believers will ascend in the clouds at the rapture. And as present verse indicates, Christ will return with the clouds, with all glory. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. John is already describing here the second coming. When Jesus was on the earth, his glory was only revealed in part to Peter, James, and John, his inner circle on the Mount of Transfiguration. But when he comes back, his glory will be revealed to the whole world. When I was in college at Montreat, North Carolina, uh, I was just a young baseball player trying to get through school on what I thought was a partial scholarship. Anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, but Billy Graham lived in Montreal. His house was there. And being, you know, 18, 19 years old, I, I mean, I knew who he was. But one day I went to the dining hall to get some food with one of my teammates. And he just grabbed me. He said, dude, there's Billy Graham. And there was Billy Graham eating the same meatloaf surprise <laughs> as the rest of us. And I said, this dude has to be holy to be eating that. I just remember walking up to him, just shaking like, wow, this is Billy Graham. I was wearing a Charlotte Hornets uh, sweatshirt at the time. And he looked at me and he said, uh, they're having a good year this year. Are you a Hornets fan? I mean, it wasn't anything spiritual or it was just, just Billy, man. He was so humble. I just remember being in his presence going, whoa, whoa, this is Billy Graham, right? But that's the way it's going to be when Jesus comes back. They will look at him and they will say, whoa. Even those who pierced him. Now, what does that mean? All the tribes of the earth will wail. Even those who pierced him. Does it refer to the Romans at the crucifixion? I don't believe so. Does it refer to all of us? I mean, after all, we are all responsible for putting Christ on the cross. But I don't think that this refers to this at all. I believe that those who see him, who pierced him, will be the repentant Jewish nation when he comes back to redeem them. Israel rejected Jesus as her Messiah, to which God then turned his attention to the Gentiles. There in Acts 10 with Cornelius. But then when the time is right, God will turn back to the nation Israel and they will repent and receive him as their true Messiah as a nation. It says in Zechariah 12.10 regarding this event, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. Israel's mourning here in Zechariah 12 will be genuine repentance that they missed it. The Gentiles, for the most part, will mourn not in repentance, but in their doom. They will mourn over the terror that awaits them. 
Peter affirms this, that it was the Jews who indeed pierced him. When he says in Acts 2, and by the way, I'm not anti-Semitic. I love Israel. Please don't take this as that. This is not that. I'm just merely giving you what the scripture says. Because I believe that God is going to come back for the Jew. And he will fulfill all of the covenant promises that he made to them in the Old Testament. They have a bright future coming. But not without trial. Paul says this in Acts 2, 22, 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan, sovereign plan of God and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And we know that when the church age ends, Jesus will turn his attention back at his second coming to save the nation Israel with his sovereign hand and fulfill all of the covenant promises he made to them in the Old Testament. If God sovereignly elected us for salvation, he will sovereignly elect the sons of Abraham and ethnic Israel at the end of the age. Paul makes his case in Romans 9 through 11, where the context of what he speaks is the nation Israel. He says this, For I do not desire, brothers, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When that last person, Gentile, gets saved, and if you're a Gentile here, hurry up. And get saved so we can go home. The deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Jacob is another term for the nation Israel. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Jesus will come and take away their sins. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is the Alpha. What does that mean? It's the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. Jesus Christ is the beginning and end. This speaks of his incredible power and omniscience. God's transcendence, his eternal presence is not confined by time or space or any feature in them. There's no doubt that this statement, that he is not unaware regarding the second coming, this assures it. And this is quite a benediction and quite a statement that Jesus will return for his church, take them to heaven, and then judge the world that rejects him. All made possible from his willing sacrifice on Calvary. I am. We pray that prayer. Jesus taught us to pray the prayer. Thy kingdom come. And the book of Revelation describes his kingdom that comes i'm looking forward are are you are you ready if you are not in christ you need to get ready before the king comes because he comes at an hour we least expect in fact jesus told us in matthew 24 to watch he condemned the pharisees in one of the gospels where he says 
you look at the weather and the sign, you know what the weather's going to be like tomorrow, but you fail to discern the signs of the times and who is standing right in front of you. I'm not talking about some newspaper, cartoon theology, left behind series, weird, you know, oh my gosh, my bagel is burned. That's a sign that the Lord is coming back. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. People in those... People can either overstate it or understate it. I'm not talking about either one of those extremes. But Jesus did tell us to watch. He told us to watch and to be ready. Are you ready? If you are not in Christ, you need to be ready. You need to turn to Christ. You need to ask forgiveness of your sins and he will cleanse you. He will make you new. He will turn you into a new creation with new desires and pleasure beyond what you could possibly imagine through the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you ready? He will wipe away every tear from your eye and he will usher you into his presence forever. Are you ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the promises that you have given to us. In your word. I pray that they'll sink deep within our hearts. That we will walk in freedom. As you have set us free. Thank you so much. For the promise. Of your revealing. Thank you so much. That you were going to come. And set everything right. As Fred said. Because everything is wrong. And we will dwell with you. And fellowship with you forever. We look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.